thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Yeah, Bo, it's that time of a Friday morning where you get to satisfy your curiosity about the world, uh, health matters, technology even. We do it all. 021-446-0567-011-8830702. The Naked Scientist is with us. Good morning, Chris. Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Now, I had a conversation with uh, one of my running mates this morning, and she was telling me that there'd been a talk at their school about technology, and there were some rules that were put to the young ones about the impact of technology on how they perform academically. Now, that resonated with me because when I'm studying or writing and I, I, I answer the phone, just that two minutes speaking to someone, I find that I, I've, I've, I cannot remember the concept or what I was working on, and I need to start all over again. Can you explain what happens in the brain when you're focusing and when you lose focus, what is that scientific process? Can we explain it? Is there an explanation for that? Or am I just not a multitasker? No, you're, you're saying what many, many people are saying, which is that our attention is continuously being hijacked by the modern world. And uh, in the old days, literally had an in-tray that filled up at the rate the postman came, which was often once or twice a day. You didn't have a computer, so there was none of these emails pinging in. And people became very good at immersing themselves in a job, doing that job, and completing a job in one go. And what's happened is that with this relentless pursuit of technology, which has brought a lot of benefits, of I mean, course. let's be honest, if, um, if it wasn't for technology, you and me would never have met, you and me wouldn't be chatting, people wouldn't be listening to this programme, we hope we're entertaining and educating people. So there are benefits, but at the same time there is a price to pay if you're not careful. And the fact that people are having their attention hijacked, there's continuous interruption, and people don't focus, it's actually forced down the attention span of the average person to minuscule amounts. It used to be that people could quite easily make programs that would last an hour on a subject. Nowadays, producers are saying, look, if this lasts more than three minutes, it's not going on my radio station. And YouTube are logging data on how long does a person, on average, watch a piece of video footage on YouTube for. The answers are staggering three minutes. Their audience retention time drops off after three minutes to almost zero. And so as a result, I think that um, we're, we're becoming much more short-term. We have effectively programmed people's brains to, to work in very small bite-sized chunks. And this has a, a downside because... Uh, what, what happens is that people are struggling to see the big picture very often these mm. days. Instead of uniting all the little facts and things together and then seeing a big picture, people tend to regard the world in smaller snapshots and they have this much shorter attention span, which means they find big jobs much more tiring and like to do little cherry-pick short ones. And so it, it is a disadvantage of technology, unfortunately. What can we do about it? Well, I think probably having identified that there might be a problem, uh, saying to people, well, you know, you, you should consider turning off your emails and your tweets and in your Facebook account for a day and actually just focusing on something because uh, divorce yourself from the distraction. 
Hmm. I just find it fascinating that people are just able to get through their work and pause and speak on the phone, pause and do this and then get back to it. But I don't think I they just... are. I think the people think they can, Reedy, but they, they don't do it very well. And there's another side to this as well, because there's a paper just come out in the journal Science this week that Facebook have published. And they're saying, actually, they've got evidence that uh, the way in which we're filtering information across the internet now and profiling people and computers building up a profile of what it thinks you're interested in, this is distorting people's world view because if you take as facebook have in this paper they've published the way the news feed works if you have a certain ideology and you like certain things then the computer learns that you like certain things and you also make friends with people who like the same sorts of things and this means that when you share information you're not sharing perspectives and viewpoints which are cross-cutting across the political and ideological landscape you're sharing stories and ideas and concepts that you and a small cadre of people are interested in and this means that you can create what they call a filter bubble um, or effectively an online echo chamber where you're only exposed to and you reinforce these fairly narrow sentiments and this is not how a democracy works. Mm. Let's go straight to the lines then on 021-446-0567 or double Uh Let's go to Kuliso in Santon. Good morning to you. Morning, Rudy. Mm. Uh, I just wanted to ask the naked scientist, is it possible for the brain to operate at 100% brain capacity? And if so, if we say that the brain operates at 10% or whatever it is, what's our benchmark? What are we using as a benchmark to measure that 10%? Wow, okay. Okay, so uh, he, he says uh, engaging 110% of his <laughs> brain. Um, the, the answer is that your brain is so metabolically hungry, it's burning off so much energy that your brain would not have evolved to be the size, scale and formidable thing that it is. Uh, at that sort of price if it were not permanently engaged doing something all of the time. Now, it, this is a myth that we only use 10% of our brains at any one time and the reason it comes about is because if you put someone in a brain scanner then you can measure which bits of the brain are becoming active when you ask people to do certain tasks. And what you see is that if you give them a, a motor a task to do, in other words you make them make movements or think about making movements, the parts of the brain that correspond to controlling movements will increase their activity. And because they make up just a fraction of the brain, people had wrongly concluded, therefore, most of the brain's doing nothing all the time. The brain is running full tilt all the time, but parts of the brain which are specialised for doing certain tasks will increase their level of activity above the general hubbub that's going on in the brain, and that's why they flash up on the brain scanner. You just have to look at someone who has had an injury to their brain, and you will see that when they're sitting there quietly, they still nonetheless are not quite normal. Uh, there's, there's, for instance, a deficit in moving a part of their body, or a deficit in feeling a part of their body. All of the brain is busy doing things all of the time. It's your most metabolically demanding organ. It accounts for about 20% of the energy that you're burning at any moment in time. But it weighs only about 2.5% of your entire body mass. So it's extremely expensive as an organ. And that's why it's so precious. And that's why we, we effectively pay the price for it, because we value it. Thank you so much, Fudiso. And, uh, okay, Thomas says we go to an ad break. Busi, please stay on the line. I'm going to take your question right after this. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Let's go to Busi in Ellensfontein. Good morning. Morning, ready? Mm. My question to the Naked Scientist is uh, why do babies and toddlers have big round tummies? Because you don't find a baby with a flat tummy. 
<laughs> Busi, nice you traumatized. I'm I always mean, looking at my daughter's stomach and thinking, what on earth is going on here? Yes, because, you know, with my daughter, I've been noticing that with every child that no man, all babies have this big tummy, you know, sticking out. Why is that? <laughs> well, I mean, there's a number of things that change as you grow older. Um, you often do start with a bit of a, a tummy, and then you get bigger, and it goes away, and then you get older, and it comes back again. Oh, no. <laughs> like, oh, it does it come blokes. back again? <laughs> well, it depends how much exercise. If you're a fit marathon runner like you, Reedy, then it's less of a problem. But um, I think part of this comes down to the shape of the body and muscle structure and the organs. The reason people's tummies stick out, uh, stick out ever is because there's more stuff going on inside than there is space inside to accommodate them, so it's got to push out somewhere. Now, as we get older, uh, you tend to deposit lots of fat, visceral fat, around your internal organs, especially in the abdomen, but elsewhere too. And this takes up space and pushes, pushes things out. In little babies, actually, they've got pretty big guts, they've got pretty big livers, they've mm -hmm. got pretty big kidneys relative to the size of them and as a result those things all take up space and so you're going to get uh, a degree of things being pushed outwards they also don't have terribly good muscle tone the muscles down the front of the abdomen the rectus abdominis which is the one you're using when you do sit-ups and also tra transversus abdominis the ones that comes round from the side and unites in the middle those muscles because they're not very busy in that baby because it's not doing sit-ups and that kind of thing the muscle tone isn't that high and the muscle tone would normally hold everything backwards and push it inside so I suspect it's a combination of small stature, the organs are relatively large for the for little size. baby, and also the muscles are not very high tone yet because the baby's not using them very much yet, so as a result, you tend to get everything a bit floppier. Thanks, Busi. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. All right, shall we go to, uh, is it Rohan in Hermanus? Hi, Reedy. Good morning. Uh, my question might sound a bit odd. There are alternative theories about whether the the, the Earth orbits the Sun, or whether the Sun orbits the Earth. Is there definitive... Oh, no, he's gone, but I'm sure we got a sense of where he was he's, going. He's yeah? gone off into another universe. <laughs> no, the answer is that people before uh, Copernicus came along thought that the Sun was... Uh, sorry, the Earth was the centre of the universe. Uh, then people made some closer observations and realised, no, the Sun is at the centre of a system the solar system in our case, and that we are going around it. Uh, there's not really any evidence that, that, that the converse is true. That said, the Sun is part of the Milky Way. It's one of the stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. There's another uh, 100 billion or so, 200 billion stars in the Milky Way. We, our, our little star, and all of the other 199.999 billion, they're all going around the core of the Milky Way. So we're going around the Sun, the Sun is going around our galaxy, and the Sun is also bobbing up and down in and out of the plane of the uh, rotating disk of the galaxy as well. And the Sun takes a couple hundred million years to complete its journey around the galaxy, and it bobs up and down with about a 20 million year frequency and we go around it taking a year so everybody's in motion all the time and uh, our galaxy is of course also going around in a big circle around the universe and expanding away from all the other galaxies on on the whole on average as well so we're all in motion we're all going somewhere okay oh two one four four six oh five six seven or double one double eight three oh seven oh two let's go to is it hein in Ritfontein? good morning morning lady morning uh chris i've got a weird question um, why when you yawn and someone puts their finger close to your mouth or in your mouth, your yawn completely disappears? Now, my wife says it disappears because I'm being an ass, but I don't think that's scientifically correct. <laughs> Sorry, what was the stimulus? Thank you. you shove something in their mouth, did you say? You put their... No, your just your finger. 
Oh, so your own finger, you yawning. Hold on. You yawning and you put your own finger or... or, No, she yawns and I put my finger in her mouth. Or just close to her mouth. Then her yawn completely disappears. (laughs) I've done this with my father as well. And his yawn completely disappears You go putting your finger in other people's mouths. (laughs) Well, I was just going to ask what what was on your finger. (laughs) What was on the end of the finger? Because that that could be quite a potent stimulus, couldn't it? (laughs) Something very unpleasant. A spider or something. A big big, big old fly. No wonder your wife says what she says. Okay, so can you stop a yawn, basically, by putting your finger in the person who's... I think the reason this works is that a yawn is a reflex which is designed to actually bring lots of cool air over a plexus of blood vessels at the top of your nose and help to cool your brain down a bit and uh, push that air into your lungs and open up your airways. Now, if you bring something close to somebody, in the same way that when you see an object approaching, you blink, and that is a subconscious reflex that your brainstem subserves to protect your eyes, you also have reflexes that are there designed to protect your airway and protect your mouth, because that's a site of vulnerability. If something goes in there that you don't want in there, it could harm you, it could also block your airway up. So there are airway-guarding reflexes, and I suspect that uh, bringing something close in, like a finger, all of a sudden, in an unexpected way, triggers one of these airway-guarding reflexes. Flexes and you shut your mouth. <laughs> Let's go to you. Um, is it Randima in Pretoria? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? Fine. Welcome. Your question? Yes. Uh, due to financial reasons, I cannot afford balance diet, so I use multivitamins. Is there no need for me to have a balanced diet if I just use multivitamins? Uh, okay, so vitamins. Right, so the question we're dealing with is, uh, do I go for food or do I go for vitamins? Well, the thing is that f- that's what food is for. We have not evolved over millions of years to obtain the right balance of micronutrients from a pot of vitamin pills, which are very expensive, by the way. We've evolved to obtain the micronutrients we need from the food that we eat. And ideally, if we eat a nice balanced diet that contains representatives of the main food groups and therefore the micronutrients that we need, those the body has evolved to obtain those micronutrients in that context. In other words, it's evolved to absorb the trace amounts of the things you need in the context of the food that they are in. We don't really know whether popping a pill is a good substitute for that, and I don't think actually it is, and there's some evidence that taking big doses of vitamin pills might be bad for you. There was a very big, uh, what they call, meta-analysis done about five, ten years ago by researchers in Copenhagen, a guy called Goran uh, Bielikovic. And what they did was to take all of these studies that have been done on thousands of people given vitamin tablets or taking vitamin tablets, and they looked at their health outcomes. And they found that if you took large amounts of vitamin A, that there was actually an increase in mortality. If you took large amounts of vitamin E, there was an increase in mortality. So by taking certain vitamins and taking them out of context of a healthy diet, then they're not just not good for you, they're bad for your health and they're also bad for your wallet. And the and drug companies and the people who make these sort of vitamin pills, they're sort of preying on people's insecurity by making people pay a lot of money for a vitamin tablet. There are very few situations where a person really does need a, a nutritional supplement in the form of a tablet that food wouldn't just cure. So do bear this in mind and, and eat a healthy diet and you should be fine. Hmm. Thanks very much, uh, Randima. Uh, 10 minutes to 10 o'clock. We're taking your calls on 021 702. I hope all of you are done with breakfast because Sam has a question. Sam in Brooklyn. 
Good morning, good morning. I just want to know when, when somebody, you see someone throwing up or retching or vomiting, why does it make you retch as well? Hi, Sam. Sorry. Yeah, it's Sorry a horrible about that. situation. Mm. <laughs> well, that's all right. I'm just, I'm just gathering the sick bowl now. <laughs> oh. uh, it, 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 you're right. It's a pretty powerful stimulus, isn't it? And it's mm. a combination of stimuli, actually. It's the sight of it for some people. It's also the smell, the sound. If you just hear someone throwing up, if, you, if I played you some sound effects, then you would immediately, some people would sort of have their hand up to their mouth going, oh, I don't feel terribly well. Um, there are some great bits of sequence on YouTube where you can watch people throwing up on fairground rides. Now, it doesn't affect me. I watch that, but then I'm a doctor. I'm used to this kind of stuff, and, and I think it's quite funny. And, you, and so I was showing it to my kids, mm -hmm. and, and my son thought it was hilarious, but then my daughter had to <laughs> run off and sort of and say, I can't watch that because it's going to make me sick. It, it's because, probably, um, when someone is being ill, the reason they're being ill is because something has got into them that shouldn't be in there. Uh, usually, you vomit when you have irritation or damage to your intestinal system. This can be a chemical irritation, it mm. can also be infection. If you're throwing it up, the reason you're throwing it up is to expel from the body the thing that's the irritant or the thing doing the damage. If someone near you is throwing up, then it's possible that you may also have ingested something that's bad for you, and so if you throw up, you'll protect yourself as well. So I suspect that part of it, in the same way that yawning is infectious, I think throwing up might also be psychologically infectious because it's, it's a sort of defence mechanism, and it means that uh, you, you can preempt the fact that you might be, have been damaged or harmed by the same thing that's got to that person, so if you throw up, you'll protect yourself. Let's go to David in Centurion High. Hi. Um, with regards to you know the the left and right hand side of the brain, how is it that you know a person you know can start at a very young age to make sure that you know they don't allow their brain to specialize? Because, as far as I understand, the brain sort of follows a path of least resistance, and the more you use a certain part of your brain, the more the synaptic connections become stronger, and as a result, your brain will be easier and more inclined to use that line of thinking. I mean, for example, if you want to raise a child that can be able to, to be okay with um, music, they can be okay with math, they can be okay with science, and any of the functions that are done in both and sides all of round the brain. Okay, yeah. thanks David. Hi David. If you look at your brain, there's about 100 billion nerve cells in there, and each of them makes between 1,000 and 5,000 connections to other nerve cells. Now, when a baby develops in the womb, the brain initially starts off as a flat plate of tissue that then rolls up to form a tube, and it forms a bulge at one end of that tube, which becomes the central nervous system and the brain proper. And in the middle of that tube is a layer of stem cells, which are rapidly dividing, and they migrate away, forming brain cells that heap up and, and form the layers of the brain. If you were to look along the length of the brain from sort of top to toe, you would see that there are slightly different genetic programs running in different parts of that brain which are clearly telling different areas of the nervous system to specialise or put themselves together in a certain way. There's a genetic pattern, if you like, which dictates what that segment of the brain is going to do. Now, what that does is have the effect of establishing a rough map of the layout of the brain. So when a baby's born, it's got all the various bits of the brain developed and they're, they're following a rough map of connections and they're following a rough map of specialisation that enable those different brain areas to be good at doing different things. You then superimpose on that lifetime experience and practice. And 
as a result, you optimise the function of these different bits of the brain. But they are nonetheless constrained by that initial rough map that was laid down during your development so that you don't, for instance, end up with the part of the brain that's specialised for seeing controlling the movement of your arms and legs. That's not to say that you couldn't force some kind of plasticity or changes in the brain if, if you absolutely had to, by very strong uh, training. Uh, you could get some nerve cells in some other bits of the brain responding to certain things, and this is a, a process called Pavlovian conditioning. But at the same time, there is that constraint of that initial map that was laid down, and you then refine the connections and the relative strengths of the connections between the different brain areas, which is actually how messages are transmitted around the brain and how processing is done. But you are nonetheless constrained by the structure that was laid down as your brain developed when you were a developing baby. Bob in Constantia, good morning. Good morning, yes. My question is, uh, when you take a sleeping tablet, does that give you the same quality of sleep as a natural sleep? Oh, because nice. I'm getting, to, I'm getting to wake up in the middle of the night if I don't take a tablet, and that's disruptive for me. Okay. Hello, Bob. It depends very much on the type of sleeping tablets, but the answer really to the question is no. It doesn't produce natural sleep. It can help to alleviate the anxiety that can prevent someone falling asleep because when a person has insomnia, very often the problem is that you can't get to sleep, so you worry about the fact that you can't get to sleep. And because you're worrying, this then makes you aroused and you can't get to sleep because you're nervous. If you take away some of that anxiety, you then have a higher chance of dropping off to sleep, but many of the things that bust anxiety, these anxiolytic drugs, also abolish the normal patterns of a restful night's sleep. And this means you don't go through the normal phases of sleep, which inc include progressively, incrementally bigger uh, REM sleep phases, which is when you do dreaming and things like that. And we know that you need uh, the full cycle of a, of a restful sleep in order to feel rested and healthy when you get up the next day. Um, so the answer to your question is, no, sleeping tablets might help someone to drop off to sleep, but they don't give someone a proper sleep experience and so can paradoxically make a person feel less well-rested mm. the next day. But if most of their problem is they're panicking because they can't get to sleep, then often helping someone to establish a good sleep cycle, which is what these tablets can do in the short term, can then help them on the way to then having natural healthy sleep in future. But if you are waking up in the middle of the night, you should perhaps ask, well, why do you think that's mm. happening? And is there an underlying problem that that needs investigation and that you need some help with that. Mm, good luck, Bob. Good luck. Thank you very much. I think a lot of people would benefit uh, from you asking that question. Well, Chris, we've come to the end of the show and uh, I'm sure it's been a very busy time in London. You went out to vote yesterday? Yeah, well, it looks like uh, uh, David Cameron yeah. is going to be the next Prime Minister. Looking at the current numbers, I don't think anyone else can catch him now. Sure. So I think um, we, we actually do now have a government that isn't made of a coalition. So mm. it'll be very interesting to see what the next five years holds. Indeed, and I just saw in CNN, I can't hear what they're saying, but I just saw a headline uh, that David Cameron is to meet with uh, Queen Elizabeth uh, at 12.30pm. So I imagine uh, it's all sealed and they'll be talking about uh, the, the, the next uh, phase of governance. What do you Anyhow. think you'll say to her? <laughs> oh no, I can't think of any uh, I think he'll say to her congratulations on being a great grandmother again I probably already said that though I was thinking he would say something like do you want to come round Downing Street we're having a few beers in um, and, and now we're having a party tonight <laughs> and the Queen will obviously will. accept and get tired. down or <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. she <laughs> well, could say come over to my place and we'll have a few glasses or something you never know <laughs> Chris, you're incorrigible. Have a lovely weekend. Bye-bye. See you soon. Bye-bye, Rudy. Bye.
Botox Cosmetic, Atabotulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.